This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. As you know, faith is a complicated thing, and this journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and I am also on this journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my story and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of faith's biggest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. Hey friends, I have some good news for you. Rethinking Faith will be back in action once again this year at Theology Beer Camp as the God Pods strike back this event will be october 19th through the 21st in springfield missouri and this year the god pods are looking amazing we have friends such as the new evangelicals you have permission homebrewed christianity the bible for normal people crackers and grape juice a tiny revolution secret art project a people's theology rev covery and more and on top of that we have some fun jedi masters Hanging out, bringing craft nerdiness such as John Dominic Crossan, Reggie Williams, Adam Clark, Sarah Lane Ritchie, Myron Penner, Thomas J. Orr, Jay McDaniel, Roberto Shea, Espinoza, Pete Enns, Leah Robertson, Tony Jones, and more. It is going to be a blast. For more information, head over to theologybeer.camp. You can use promo code RethinkingGodPod, all one word, capital letters. Rethinking God Pod for $25 off of your registration fee. Come on and hang out this year at Theology Beer Camp. It was a blast last year. I enjoyed getting to see and meet so many of uh, you listeners, and I look forward to hanging out this year once again. So, again, theologybeer.camp and use promo code Rethinking God Pod. Hope to see you guys there. All right, friends, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson, and joining me today, which I think is now the third time on the podcast, is Aaron Simmons. Aaron, how are you doing today, man? 
Man, I am doing fantastic. Uh, third time is the charm, I think. So I will do my best not to be nearly as boring as the first two times. Not, nah, dude, I have really enjoyed our previous conversations, um, especially after I've gotten to like know you a little bit um, through some of our like personal interactions and these kind of things. And also, um, I'm hoping that some of my uh, more recent study in philosophy um, aids me somewhat in, in a way that's helpful and meaningful <laughs> to the conversation. I've noticed uh, in myself this kind of shift um, where I used to read a whole bunch of um, theology all the time, primarily. And more recently, I've been kind of getting caught up uh, in, in the more philosophical side of things. Um, yeah. Not that the two are totally necessarily, you know, divorced from one another, but uh, yeah. it's been interesting. No, I, I, I think it's cool. I mean, my, my thought is anybody who can um, non-ironically and so successfully rock a backwards ball cap, like what, whatever you say is probably gonna be right. So, so, so I'm already like pretty close to being convinced without even hearing the argument. So, all right, I'll, I'll take it. I like the, the, you know, with hats though, for me, I can never find them where the brim comes on the front. That's been my problem. So wherever you find your hats with brims on the front, you know, let me know, send me a link and I'll uh, try to pick I, some I, up. <laughs> I feel that That's your I, I have recently... <laughs> <laughs> I have recently, um, I, th I think this is maybe the biggest pivot in my middle age. It's not writing my first popular audience book. It's not, you know, deciding that 45 and now 46 is maybe something pretty cool. I'm convinced the biggest shift in my middle age is deciding maybe I can come close to pulling off a quasi flat build ball cap. Because I, I'm from the South, like all of my ball caps, man, and I've got dozens, all of them are, I mean, hardcore, like I hang outside redneck at, you know, 930 p.m. on a Friday night just to look at tires looking kind of brims that that's sort of how all my hats are. And then recently, I think, to be honest, I think it's the mountain biking. I've kind of gotten more attracted to like, man, that flat bill looks pretty slick. And then I've got a 14 year old who is convinced that bending a brim is tantamount to the unforgivable sin. So he's been telling me, dad, no, stop it. Stop it, man. That no. So I'm doing the best I can to catch up with the cool kids. Well, I dig it. I dig it. I respect the, a solid flat brim hat. I I'm not <laughs> one that can fully pull those off. So, uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> uh, Aaron, just, in case, you know, the for the listeners who didn't catch our first two conversations, although friends, you should definitely go check them out. They were a lot of fun. Um, could you just give us like a quick brief intro into a little bit of, you know, who you are and what you uh, find yourself doing? Yeah, man. Uh, so my name is Aaron Simmons. I published just for anybody who cares uh, with a J period in front of my name. So it's J Aaron Simmons. Uh, and the reason I published with that, Jay, is out of honor to my dad, whose name is John. And so I'm named after him. But also because it turns out there is another Aaron Simmons, who is a philosopher who got his PhD, I think, the same year, if not one year off of me. And so we actually met at a conference. and I was like, hey, man, I'll, I'll publish with my first initial. That way we can differentiate. So it was kind of a deal made years ago at the end of grad school. Um, but, yeah, I'm a professor of philosophy at Furman University uh, in Greenville, South Carolina. 
specialize primarily, uh, this is sort of my day job, uh, specialize in deconstructive philosophy of religion and the intersection of phenomenology, existentialism, and questions in contemporary, you know, ethics, value theory, political philosophy, that sort of space. And so all of my previous books have been very technical, very academic, um, and all of them, though I think are important contributions to the debates as they exist for a bunch of people who walk around thinking modal ontology and Heideggerian, you know, accounts of whatever are really, really, really why you get out of bed. I wrote some books for those people. Uh, now I find myself embarking on a kind of new space, a new direction, and it's a result of the brokenness that COVID placed on everybody and also, you know, having a teenager for the first time in my life. I've only got one kid. He's turning 14 this week. Um, and also being in my mid 40s. And so just lots of different things that all came together. I wrote a book recently came out a few weeks ago called Camping with Kierkegaard Faithfulness as a Way of Life. And this book is meant for everybody. And so it details a lot about the shifts in my middle age to, you know, trying to find ways to go camping and fishing and backpacking and mountain biking instead of spending more time at the office. And that's kind of who I am, where I am. And so people say, like, you know, give us a bio. It used to be, you know, J. Aaron Simmons, PhD, Vanderbilt University, is professor of blah, blah, blah. Now what I say is I'm a philosopher, an author, a fisherman, a mountain biker, a dad, a husband, and doing my best not to suck at all of them at the same time. Like, that's kind of where I find myself <laughs> at 46. So I dig it. I dig it. I think. Um, you know, compliments too, as, as you're saying, I think you captured kind of a goal with, uh, with camping with Kierkegaard, um, at this kind of like, uh, accessible, um, and engaging, um, you know, kind of engagement with, uh, Kierkegaard and friends because you mm -hmm. engage with uh, other philosophers as well. Um, and I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, I read it, I uh, in a variety of spaces. One of my favorites was at the beach. Uh, was was a pretty nice place to read it and enjoy it. Um, nice. You know, there was a specific chapter. I'll let you in on it later in the conversation that uh, <laughs> actually that moved me to tears over my uh, oh, wow. my my morning coffee uh, at the beach. And so that one was wow. uh, stood out to me. So um, it means a lot. Yeah, it, it's a kick ass uh, kick ass book, man. And so um, I'm excited to to have you back to talk about it. Um, Appreciate, but. It. Before we jump in specifically to the book, I do have a little bit of housekeeping I have to take care of. So I was cutting my grass the other day and listened to a conversation that you had uh, with another friend of the podcast, Trip Fuller, uh -oh. and specifically about this book. Um, and I, it was a, a great conversation. Uh, my neighbors probably think I'm crazy, you know, laughing as I'm cutting grass <laughs> out loud, you know, they, they, uh, they think you're a sadist <laughs> out there like, hello, lizard. And you're trying to like, <laughs> exactly. catch up with the frog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And, uh, you know, talking to myself or, or, you know, making exclamations, but anyway, towards the end of that episode, uh, trip read an endorsement for your book from a gentleman by the name of uh, Timothy Whitaker. And uh, you proceeded to criticize Tim's uh, paradiddle skills, I believe. Yes, the, the, the sloppy paradiddles, man. That's right. Yes, the sloppy paradiddles. And so I received a, a memo today <laughs> that I was asked to read. Um, and it's from said person, Tim Whitaker. Uh -oh. And it says, yeah, quote, short and sweet. 
Here's my message for Aaron. Confident drummers don't talk smack. End quote. <laughs> and I now that's out of the way. So don't shoot the messenger. I, 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 I appreciate that. Uh, and I, I will send our mutual friend, Tim, a, a parking shot over the bow. Um, for what it's worth, uh, he and I are planning a sort of in good spirited fun drum off at the theology beer camp, which is coming up in Springfield. Of course, Rethinking Faith will be there. Uh, also, New Evangelicals are with Tim, Homebrew with Trip, and others. And so Tim and I for multiple years have been saying, hey, man, we need to set up a drum set and just like, you know, throw down a little bit because both of us have been professional drummers for a long time. And so that's the plan. So just for everybody who knows, that's where this all comes from is we're uh, trash talking relative to this drum off happening in Springfield in October. But I've been thinking like this is legit serious. I, I have been thinking, crap, because I've been baited into this trash talk game by by, by my, um, let's just say, questionable uh, virtue friend trip. I, I was thinking like, man, when we get up actually to do this, I, I can't say. Everybody like, look, this is purely in good fun. It's going to be great. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. Because all that does is make me say, man, you talk a big game until you sit down behind the kit, right? So it turns out the only option I have is to go deeper down this rabbit hole, <laughs> right? So so the only out is to double down on the challenge. And so I'm I'm basically saying, all right, Tim, bring your flam accents and shut me up, man. So as far as I'm concerned, if you've got clean flam taps, th then respect is due. So let, let's see what you got. Um, I will say I've got a little seven, eight number that might get dropped into my performance. So I don't know about, you know, the exclusive four, four of uh, Mr. Whitaker, but maybe he'll raise his game and we'll have a good time together. <laughs> ah, very well done. Very well done. <laughs> In all, all seriousness, right. Tim is a rock star, and he sends me videos of him playing drums with his band. And man, that dude is fantastic. And it's an honor not only to know him, but I'm actually genuinely stoked to be able to actually hear him, you know, drop some some dime on a kit, man. Because I, I am a fan of his. So looking forward to it. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be sweet. And Tim is uh, also such a nice guy. Um, yeah. And yeah, like the work that he's doing with New Evangelicals is fantastic. Um. But anywho, that's enough of building up Tim's ego. Uh, we'll we'll move on from Tim Whitaker. <laughs> so with with your book, um, Camping with Kierkegaard, um, kind of this like a big question that you use to frame the book um, has to do with what will you do with your finitude? Yeah, and I've heard you um, ask that question in talks before in person. Mm -hmm. um, We've, I think, mentioned it, you know, or, or, or talked about it before on the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. But that question is one that uh, continues to both haunt and motivate me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's what it's supposed to do, right? I mean, it's, it's, and by the way, uh, I have swag that will be coming with me to Springfield. And so a um, fancy sticker will be yours that simply says, what is worthy of your finitude? And so uh, it's got some mountains and also a tent up at the top of it. And so that will be yours, my friend, as soon as we get there. And I I think the reason that this question 
is so powerful for me and I hope it is for others. It's been rewarding hearing lots of people respond saying, man, that question, like, you know, kind of wrecked me a little bit. And I, I think the reason that it does that work where it motivates and also challenges is I, I think all of philosophy, which again, I'm a professional philosopher. I'm not a theologian. This book, for what it's worth, is not a book written to Christians. It's not about Christianity, but it certainly has a lot of my own um, Christian heritage sort of implicitly showing up. Um, and as a philosopher, I've wrestled for years and years and years. Like when I teach philosophy to students, I we, we always teach it as, you know, philosophy is the love of wisdom, which doesn't say much at all. Philosophy is, you know, the search for truth, but so is everything that you study in college. And so one of the problems I had was I kept trying to find some way to present philosophy as a question mark. And the best I could do was, and I've said this in a lot of different spaces, TEDx talk years ago, was, you know, philosophers put question marks where everybody else puts periods. And I think that that's exactly right. But of course, what we would say back is, yeah, yeah, but but what question then are they asking? Like, where's that question mark go, right? And it's not probably Georgia football is still number one, question mark. Like, that's probably not the question that they're asking. And so it was wrestling with what question can I use to give to my students to get them invested in why philosophy matters? And to be honest, it wasn't really until COVID hit. And I started having all these students reach out saying, I'm staying in the philosophy class because it's the only one that seems practical right now. It's the only one speaking to where we are. It's the only one speaking to the vulnerability and the suffering and the misery that we're sort of navigating there in the beginning of 2020. And I thought, wow, like that's it. The, the thing that's so frustrating to us is we feel like what we were doing, how we were spending our time wasn't the right things to do, right? Hence the frustration, hence the loneliness, hence the isolation. And so what's worthy of our finitude emerged from two sources. One, it came out of David Foster Wallace's little book, This is Water, where he basically asks us, you know, what is worthy of our worship? And he doesn't ask it in a religious way. He asks it in an attention way, like what's worthy of your ultimate commitment? And so that coupled then with Kierkegaard, who has this line somewhere where he says that life is the moment of decision, <laughs> right? Like at every instant, we're trying to figure out how then will I navigate the next instant? And so when you kind of put existential philosophy together with this, what's worthy of my worship, worship question in Wallace, what fell out was it's because we are limited and mortal that we don't have an, an unlimited amount of time, that it makes such a difference. We get really purposive about how we spend our time and what's worthy of our finitude showed up then as that's it. That's what all of philosophy has always been asking. And it turns out you don't have to read philosophy to get the power of it because all of us are trying to figure out how do I live today to bring about the tomorrow that I hope becomes actual. Right. And so in that sense, it's supposed to inspire us, which, it again, I wrote this book very much like for me and for my son. And the fact that other people are enjoying it, I think, is awesome. But it wasn't like I was writing. I wrote it literally on top of mountains, but it wasn't like me on top of a mountain yelling down to the valleys. Here is wisdom. 
It's me saying, ah, dang it. Like what is worthy of my finitude? And it inspired me to shift my behavior, shift my practices, but it also convicted me because I realized how much of my 44 or five years of life at the time, like how much of that I had spent doing stuff that if I could do it differently now, I would. Right. And so it's a, it's meant to be a sort of critical challenge that it inspires us forward in light of the fact that possibility is real and that we can, as the hip hop artist bus driver says, we can make it better, but we're not. And it's the but we're not that the book is trying to push back on and say, yeah, but we can come on. Let, let's let's breathe deep. Let's strap up our you know helmets. Let's throw on our goggles, grab our fishing rods. Let's actually head to the mountains and try to live on purpose with a little bit different verb, a little bit different energy. You know, it's like when we go to a show right before the, the talk tonight, I told you I was listening to a live performance by Rancid and man, like the energy in that room is nuts, man. And you think like, oh, I'll turn that off and walk into one of my philosophy classes. It's such a letdown, <laughs> right? And so it's like, man, how can we bring the energy of the Rancid show to bear on where we find ourselves, even when we're wearing a coat and tie or having to be serious or, you know, life is not always fun and games, but how can we be energetically invested in the significance of that minute? And that I think is ultimately what I was trying to do with that question. And I hope it's something that other people, you know, really do vibe with. Yeah. It, well, I mean, I can, you know, if, if it'd be practical, I can share a little bit what, like just personally, what that question has done for me, um, you know, Dude, recently, I would love that. Please do. Yeah, sure. So like it, it really, really the, when it hit me the hardest was, and I still remember it was at beer camp last year. Um, when you were giving your talk and you you used that phrase a couple times, and I think if I remember correctly, you even ended with that. Um, it's kind of this like invitation but call to action at the same time. That's right. And that's really when it you know started to get me thinking, and I and like you know I had said I couldn't drop it, and ultimately, um, that paired with kind of the idea of uh, you know we are who we're becoming. And, you know, if you don't like the person you are right now, you're not going to like who you uh, become kind of thing that we've <laughs> talked exactly about right. before. So yep. it, taking that and and pairing those together, I really started thinking seriously about um, my profession as a brewer. Now, nice. uh, what I'm not doing is shitting on people who brew because I absolutely mm -hmm. love it. Um, mm -hmm. I have a lot of good friends that still do it. I love the industry. I think I will forever love the craft beer yeah. industry the art of it, the craft, the community, everything. But when I was honest with myself, something felt uh, missing. Something wasn't quite mm. right. It was fun. Um, but when I actually pondered that, is this worthy of my finitude? Um, am I happy with who I'm becoming? Uh, when I was honest with myself, it was always no. Wow. Um, <clears throat> and that tied in Oh, another idea that you talked about in your book, this idea of um, persistence, not always being a good thing. And <laughs> right. it, that hit me, too, because I, I was I was very persistent uh, within the the brewing industry. I became a brewer very quickly, which is not normal. I got lucky. Um, I became a brewer and then I got to go brew at full tilt and then got hired at Union, which is like, yeah. you know, like big big deal here in baltimore awesome um 
and I was continuously persistent and grinding and grinding and grinding, but it felt like the thing that it, it was going to set me up to ultimately become, I couldn't, yeah. it wasn't what I wanted. <laughs> yep. And so the yep. asking that question um, really is just helpful in a practical way to kind of frame big decisions that were difficult to make, like the one I ultimately did make, which was leaving mm -hmm. brewing. Not because, again, that I hate it or I hate the people, right. um, but because the kind of person I'm looking to become or the kind of life my wife and I want um, wasn't going to work out. And so that's kind yeah. of like a, a very awesome. practical example of this kind of being applied to my life. <laughs> uh, and, man, uh, I, I love it. It means so much to me if you say that. And uh, it, it's true. Like you use the word grinding. Um I, I once had a, a rock polishing kit I bought for my son because he was when he was young, he was utterly convinced he was going to be a geologist. And, you know, like we, we did more. Oh, my goodness, more bags and, you know, barrels of sand with like rocks that had been seeded into it. And you put them in, you know, filtering them through the water at the gem mines and stuff. He, he did hundreds and hundreds of dollars of these things because it was like his love, his passion. He wanted to love these rocks. And so we thought, man, what would be better than to buy him this gym mining, rock polishing kind of kit? And so he's got all these rocks. You can throw them in there and you put the different grits, right? And you add different grits at different times. You let it run. And then it takes this thing that looks like something you found in your backyard. And suddenly it's like, you know, gemstone quality could be set in a ring. And we thought, man, this is great. We'll, we'll get this for him. Well, <laughs> years and years and years ago, I had gone to one of these gym mining things probably when I was like, oh, shoot. 15, you know, decades ago, and had gotten found this little red ish looking rock. But I mean, it looked just like a rock you would throw away. And the guy at the gym mine said, Oh, my goodness, that's a ruby. You're really lucky. Those are pretty rare. And I and my birthstone's a ruby. And so I had kept this little, I don't know, like, uh, half of a wine bottle cork size. So not huge, but it was big enough that like you could, you know, polish it down to something really special. And I had kept it for decades. And I said, Atticus, when we use your gem mining polishing kit, I would love to polish up this ruby. I've had it for like 30 years. I've never seen what it could look like. It's just this kind of reddish looking stone from the backyard. But man, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, dad, that's awesome. Let's do that one first. So he stuck it in. I read the instructions on you know, how to do relative to rubies and this and this and this. Well, it turns out uh, when we opened it back up, me super excited, Atticus super excited, that half cork sized ruby had become, I mean, my goodness, like the size of pretty small shotgun shell BBs. <laughs> like that thing was just destroyed. It was gone. And it turns out it wasn't a ruby. And so because I thought it was something other than it was, we polished it way too long. We ground it down to such a point that there was nothing left. Now, in the process that we ground it just a little bit, it might have been this gorgeous reddish stone that we still could have used. But we were working under an assumption and we didn't let go of that assumption. So we never opened it up to check. We never made sure. We just said, that's what it is. Let's do it. And we ended up like ruining this stone because we just kept grinding, kept grinding, kept grinding. And I think we do the same thing in life, right? We tend to think persistence is a virtue, <clears throat> keep your head down, run hard, 
you know, push through obstacles. If you want it enough, go make it happen. But we don't actually stop a lot and think, but what is it I really want? Do I want just not to not have succeeded at this thing? Or do I really want what succeeding at this thing makes possible for me as a mortal being? Like this is giving me the life that I actually want to live into. And I think, unfortunately, too many of us and, you know, whether it's because of capitalism or because of just our overscheduled lives or because of a digital age, who knows, we tend to think that persistence is always a good. And it turns out, like I talk about in the book, persistence is only good if the direction is something that you continue to reassess, <laughs> right? And since it's rethinking faith, uh, you know, your, your podcast, the subtitle, Faithfulness as a Way of Life, is all about that. So faith for me is simply risk plus direction. And so the only way we can keep rethinking our direction, is this the right way? Should I shift? Is Am I really doing what is the right thing to do to bring about what I'm really concerned with? The only way to rethink direction and then move in it is to embrace the fact that risk will always remain. There just is no non-risk option available for human existence. And for what it's worth, another one of my stickers I have that I'll have for sale when I give talks and stuff is it's just the double black diamond symbol from mountain biking and skiing. And that double black diamond, if anybody mountain bikes or skis, whatever, on the bottom, it just says experts only. Because it's meant to be like, look, do not do this trail if you don't know what you're doing. And I loved the idea that in life, there are no, you know, green trails. <laughs> there, there's not like, oh, there, there's the baby trail. Go do that and build up and then come over here and do the expert thing. There is only expert trails. And the problem is none of us are experts at life. And so the risk never really goes away. We just get more comfortable navigating risk because we've got more experience on the trail. And so faith for me is not a religious concept. I mean, it is personally, but not philosophically in the book. It's not, a again, a book about religion. Faith is just recognizing that risk with direction is how we move forward in life. And so I love that for you, I imagine like that was risky, right? Not only leaving brewing to go do something else is risky because Will it work out? Is it actually going to provide in the ways I want it to? But it's also risky because there's a self involved. What, what will happen to my conception of who I am? I've been the brewer, right? Like that's part of how I present. And now I'm not that thing. Is that is that too much of a cost? And it turns out, like Kierkegaard says, we understand backward, but we always live forwards. And that living forwards is this idea that risk doesn't go away. But maybe as we continue to rethink direction, maybe we can get a little bit better, whether on the mountain bike or the hiking trail or at the beach, we can get better at being intentional about where we are. Like Anne Lamott says, we should be where our feet are. And I love that idea. And I think most of us want to be where our feet will be, <laughs> right? Or we just kind of don't ever pay attention to where our feet are because if we don't pay attention, we won't be as frustrated. And so if we really pay attention, we say, man, I love where I'm at. Let's do this on purpose. Let's not miss this. Or man, my feet are stuck in mud right now. <laughs> like I, I should probably move them or there's a snake next to my foot. Do I move my foot? 
depends what kind of snake it is, right? So we have to be really attuned and aware, which is what philosophy invites us to do. And so again, the book has a host of what I call the cloud of witnesses of existential philosophy, all trying to help us develop that attention, that awareness, so we can figure out how to move our feet or keep it planted in the right ways. Yeah, I love, excuse me, I love the the idea of the feet thing, because um, it reminds me, it, like I draw a few connections in my head, um, especially when you start talking about kind of the, you know, not paying attention to where our feet are and more so being focused on the future or something out there. Um, yeah. And that reminds me of a few things. The first thing that kind of comes to mind is what um, I picked it up from Peter Rollins um yeah. but i'm sure you can find it elsewhere but this idea of like the myth of the sacred object yeah. that like there is this object out there that exists and once we find it then like everything will be great right like I, it can and it can be anything it can be um once we get like that spouse or that car or that promotion or you know yep. that degree whatever mm-hmm. um and then it kind of like becomes this perpetual chasing that is never satisfied because you get that thing you get the car the job the girl the whatever and you're still like well shit <laughs> yeah so there's no, like exactly right yeah there's like that that seems to be coming into play for me and then also the kind of the way you talk about it um in the book is you kind of set up a difference between like faithfulness like living a life mm-hmm. of faithfulness or that's faith oriented versus mm-hmm. like the kind of success oriented bit yeah. And they yeah. seem to kind of play with that idea as well. And kind of this. That's right. Um, yeah. Being being where our our, our feet are. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested if you'd be willing to kind of maybe draw out some of the distinctions there between the yeah. this ethic of not. Eth- well, maybe ethic of success yeah. versus one of faithfulness. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I think that's super I mean, interesting. It's, it, it, well, this is the core. I mean, the book, if it has an argument. Because uh, again, I was it wasn't written as like here are my seventeen step proof for this conclusion kind of thing. Um, you know, it's essays, right? It's it's me thinking about being in the mountains and being with my family and wrestling with you know my dad's cancer diagnosis and the death of one of my former professors and you know all, all of these dynamics are in play. Um, but if there's an argument in the book, it's this: it's that a success orientation is always going to leave us empty at an existential level. And a faithfulness orientation at least gives us the best shot we've got, (laughs) right? Doesn't guarantee anything, risk remains. The best shot we've got for overcoming that emptiness. And so what do I mean by these general orientations? By success, my thought here is not, um, hey, let's do the best we can in life to accomplish goals. that seems utterly reasonable, right? If we're going to go to college, the goal of going to college is to finish college and get a degree, right? The the point of getting married is not to go get divorced. It's to persist in that marriage. I mean, the, the idea of getting a job is not to then get fired. It's to be able to then thrive in that position. So there's nothing wrong. And I try to make this clear in the book, but it turns out um, some students of mine who've been reading the book, this is where they get hung up because their whole world is at 19, 20 years old, right? But I've got to get out of college. I've got to get to med school. I've got to get that job. I've got to make sure that that first date leads to a second one so I can not be lonely the rest of my life. Like their whole world is about making sure they're checking these boxes. 
And the problem I have with this is not that we set goals. We have to set goals. And we should do the best to be strategic relative to those goals. However, we live in a cultural space. And the we here, I basically don't just mean America. I mean, broadly post-enlightenment, you know, broadly capitalistic, democratically adjacent societies in this kind of broad sense, we find ourselves with such unbelievable pressure to equate our own moral dignity with the accomplishments that are externally appreciated. And so the success orientation that I oppose is not you want to be a physician? Take some biology classes, right? Like that, of course, do that. The thing I oppose is, hey, go be a physician because it's likely to make you wealthy. And if you're wealthy, you'll be happier and, you know, more important as a being. That's in the Harry Frankfurt sense, some bullshit, man. Like th there's nothing about that that is something we should say yes to. And yet, what do we do every single day? Our whole world is defined by how many followers, how many people come to your church, how, how much money are you making? Like everything we do is about checking boxes and making sure that it can be appreciated in an external mode so that others can not only celebrate and applaud you, but others can be jealous of you and want to be like you. Notice now how that moral shift from we are all equally, infinitely of moral worth becomes, man, if only I could be like that, then I'd be something. And the problem with that approach is only one of two options are available. You set out and you accomplish everything you ever tried to do. You are more successful than you ever thought even possible. Good. Like, I hope that works out for people. The problem is, I've pretty much never heard someone give the TED Talk that sounds like the Willy Wonka speech at the end of the film. You know what, Charlie, when you get everything you ever wanted, you don't live happily ever after. You almost always realize that it was not what you thought it would be, that there's still this gaping hole at the heart of our existential being, right? And that gaping hole, I think, is because we are defined by two traits. And this is also in the book. We are vulnerable. We die, hence the finitude. And we are relational which means not only do we need each other, but we are invested in each other thriving. But notice what success says. I can only be successful if I'm better than others, right? The whole framework is a framework of denying our relationality at some level, except insofar as we see others as competitors, right? Or we then deny our very vulnerability. Because we think if I can just be successful enough, nothing can touch me, right? And I've told this story before, but literally, man, it, it haunts me to this day. When I got real nervous about COVID was when Tom Hanks caught it. And I thought, we're screwed. <laughs> like, Tom Hanks owns islands and stuff. Like, if anybody escapes this, it's that guy. And he got COVID like a month in. And I was like, wow. There... It doesn't matter how much money you've got, how many degrees you've got. 
the the joy that is anchored in something like genuinely being okay with yourself which means genuinely being okay with others like that fact is something that i think if we strive for success and pull it off we still aren't okay with ourselves because now what do we do your whole identity's been get another get another do more do more be more be more and then you get it all and the number of CEOs, man, who I've given talks to, and then they call me, and I've had some in tears in their 50s, richer than you and I will ever be, saying, but it just doesn't matter. I love the toys, but it just doesn't matter. So we either make the success and then realize it doesn't do for us what we were hoping, or we fail at it, right? Which it turns out far more likely. And so if we fail to then do the thing that we were convinced if only we could do, we would matter. Now, what do we do with ourselves? Because the name of our very identity is not good enough, right? And so I am not opposed to people making stuff happen in their life, thriving in their jobs, seeking out different careers, becoming successful. I am utterly opposed to that logic of value being what anchors us in our lives. And so faithfulness is the alternative that I propose. Faithfulness does not say ignore practical stuff. Faithfulness says, no, just realize it's logistics. Hey, if you want to you know, be an academic, you got to go get a PhD. It's logistics. So if you're going to be faithful not to being an academic, raw, but being somebody who did the best you could to live toward who you hope to have been. Well, part of that might be, I'd love to be an academic. Awesome. But I care less that you're an academic than you are somebody who finds ways to be kind, to show love, to cultivate virtue, right? And so, yes, go get that PhD. But as soon as you think, now I've got to call you doctor because you're better. No, man, like that's not how this works. Right. And that's what I'm trying to do by pitting success and faithfulness in contrast. It is not at all about don't go make stuff happen. It's about if you do it, you're not better. If you don't do it, you're not worse. You were always already good. Right. And, and that idea, I forget who it was I was talking to recently. Uh, I've been talking about the book a lot, different people, but uh, <laughs> one of the, things that continues to come back to me is this sort of hip hop kind of just saying that you'll hear in lots of different rap songs where it's like, baby, I'm good. <laughs> right? Like that idea, can we say, baby, I'm good. And for me, that's what, for example, you know, the, the song it is well with my soul is all about. That's not a song that says ignore tragedy. Everything's wonderful. It's all providential. It just says, no, the C's effed up and it just killed my family. I'm broken to the point where words can't even happen. And yet I'm good. That doesn't mean I can pay my bills. We should fix that. Let's fix social justice issues so people can. It doesn't mean that I have political equality. Patriarchy is evil. Racism is evil, right? Like heterosexism is evil. Let's go find ways to break those bonds that prevent people from living into the agency that should be politically available. But regardless of those things, existentialism is not just a political movement. Existentialism says 
But can we, like the Stoics, can we, like James Cone, can we, like Martin Luther King, can we, like Simone Weil, find ways to say, yes, we will strive for success in civil rights and gender equality and equal pay. Yes, we will strive for success there. But if we don't pull it off because the power structure continues to oppress, we're still good. And the fact that you don't think we are is, in fact, the evil, right? That is the move I'm trying to kind of give voice to in a not liberation theology mode, but in a broadly existential philosophy mode. I don't know. Does that, does that make sense? What do, what do you think about those, those examples? I, I know I'm stacking metaphors, man. <laughs> I've got, it's well with my soul, some Jay-Z and a little bit of James Cone. Like th- this is a weird answer. <laughs> no, it's good because uh, as you were talking, I've stacked my own metaphors, but to that, that kind of um, the, the way you wrapped up there, uh, a hip hop reference that came to mind immediately was that of Kendrick Lamar, um, where he says, I'm fucked up, homie. You fucked up. But if God got us, then we're going to be all right. And it's we like going to be that, all right. Yes. I yes. love that song. Um, and yes. also, side note, one of my favorite uh, sermons I've ever seen ended with it was uh, an African-American pastor. And that was the he was preaching on like the kind of, mm-hmm. um, you know, breaking free from oppression and this kind of thing. And that's how he ended the the sermon was he said, now, yes. let me quote the great yes. American prof, uh, uh, poets. Yes. Uh, Kendrick Lamar, and he ended it with that. And I was like, and here's what's so powerful, right? What's so great about that is it's not as long as God's got us, we gonna be all right in the sense that the bill will get paid. No, like stuff can still suck, right? And so the the one critique about this book that I have heard, and I think it's um, unfair, but understandable, is I'm encouraging people to find joy now, to reorient their time and their priorities and focus and use their energies in ways that then say, hey, you know, like you, if it turns out the job you're in is not worthy of your like change jobs, right? And yet I recognize, well, that's a kind of privilege, right? There's a luxury to being able to swap jobs and not worry about it because you don't have three kids at home and you're trying to make sure they don't lose their health care, right? So it's a it's again, I think it's unfair, but it's understandable that someone would say, this is a bunch of privileged nonsense. My response is to say, I get it. And I understand. And I think that's the right critique, but it's an unfair critique because unless we with Kendrick Lamar say, there's a vision of something else worthy of our finitude and it's worth fighting for it's worth persisting toward. It's worth the risk of the huge drops and the big waves and the sandstorms. What the hell are we moving for? Like, what what are we moving toward? So this book is very much trying to say existential philosophy is not going to like be this political agenda. It is, however, going to give us, I think, a vision of what is possible for the human condition in relational solidarity in light of our vulnerability that is worth now engaging in political action to try to strive for. It, it, it's what motivates why the injustice is actually unjust, because it turns out we are the kinds of beings whose value does not depend on our job does not depend on our money status, doesn't depend on our skin color or our sexual orientation, right? So only if we, in my opinion, grasp this sort of existential trajectory 
do we have really good arguments for why we are so frustrated by the injustice that plagues our world? So that's what I mean by it's not fair. I don't mean like, oh, poor me. Like, no, it's unfair in the sense that, but in the name of what are you critiquing it? Precisely the vision that I'm trying to lay out, right? Like, it's because you think it's effed up that two white dudes can take time off their jobs to go fishing or can just switch jobs and they're going to be all right. Like, yeah, I get it. That is effed up. It's, but it's, it's the case that it's effed up because others can't, right? It's not, oh, well, then nobody should. It's like, no, we've got to find a way such that the vision of what is possible for human flourishing becomes actually a human commitment, not just something that allows us to be separated relative to socially contingent categories that ultimately are not worthy of our finitude, right? It, it is unbelievably tragic that we name bodies differently and then say, so your finitude won't be worth as much as that body's finitude, right? Whether this, again, is race, sexuality, gender, whatever, or disability, different aptitudes, right? Different geographical locations, different accents can radically shift the flourishing that is possible for you. So immigration status, right? All of those things, I think, but what is it we are trying to risk toward? And what I'm trying to say is, well, whatever that looks like as a social vision, and again, I'm a progressive, like I can lay that out, but others can disagree with me about some of that social vision, whatever that looks like as an individual commitment, man, like life is too short for us not to actively pursue joy, right? And if there are obstacles to our joy that are structural, let's link arms and fight that stuff, <laughs> But but sometimes the obstacles to our joy is our own inability to break free from the bondage of the very success orientation that tells us you ain't good enough, man. You, you don't have a Porsche. Oh, you got last year's Tesla? Dude, eh, close. Like, notice how we rank value. And I just continue to think, man. Like if we let students go to college and think college was worth it if and only if it pays them back financially, we somehow didn't educate them, right? I hope it pays them back a billion times over financially. And then they use their money in virtuous ways to change poverty. But you know what? That may not work out. Did we invite them to think deeply about who they are trying to become? When I was 20, like my goals shifted now at 46. And that's cool. That makes sense also with our lives. At 20, I wanted to get married. I wanted to have a big fancy truck. I wanted to own a wolf. Like I had these weird goals because I was 20. At 46, I don't have goals that I can check off. There's things I hope to do, but my goals are like, be a good father, right? But here's what's weird about that. I had the best fathering win ever, like two Fridays ago. I mean, crushed it, man. It involved chicken wings and an awesome night with my son. Ended up listening to like Alkaline Trio, Suck It, Blink-182, to like the the like shouting out, mercy me, in the back of my truck with my son. It was an awesome day. So of course, right? And you'll get this. Of course, I abandoned my family on Saturday. But that doesn't make any sense, right? Because the point's not check that box, boom. 
It's how do I keep living faithfully into being a good father? Well, the only way I do that is if I'm constantly trying to become a good father, not checking it off, having accomplished it. And I just want to encourage people to think, what are those goals? These becoming goals. (laughs) And they may shift a little bit over our life, but they shouldn't shift absolutely, right? Our being goals, our success goals, those can shift absolutely. I have no desire to get married now because I'm married. Like that's a fundamentally not on the table. But the fact is, well, you know, I still want to teach a good class tomorrow. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to try to check the box. Man, I did a good class. All right, cool. Let me see if I can do it again next Tuesday. But what I don't do is crush the class tomorrow and then walk away from my job. Like the, the whole point is how do we live into the lives that we find ourselves already living? And if those lives are effed up because of structural injustice, we got to partner together and find ways to fix that. But it also an awful lot of the time is the fact that we bind ourselves by embracing a logic that is necessarily stripping our dignity from us and our joy and our happiness. And to be honest, our futures. And that's the thing I'm trying to fight by talking about how my workaholic earlier self, like it broke, man. And so now I want to go fishing with my dad and I want to go biking with my son and I want to have dinner with my wife. And yes, I'm still working a lot because I also still got to work to pay bills every single month. But you know what? Like it's easier to grade papers all day. If I know that the next day I'm going to have tea with my wife, like like finding ways to be intentional. And again, yeah, but what if you're working three jobs and you can barely stay awake and, you know, fine for you to say because of your privilege? I get it. That just encourages me to be even more vigilant to work against the structural injustice that prevents others from living into that basic human dignity that should be available because of our agency. If you have had your agency stripped from you because of your body, because of your social position, because of historical marginalization, man, like we have failed each other. And I try in this book to lay out a vision of what it might look if we failed each other less. Yeah. uh, As you're talking, like this kind of metaphor, um, came to mind for me so i want to try it out with you and you can tell me if it sucks or not um and it has to do with this whole like the logic of success thing so um imagine like uh you know a couple and uh they get married and you know commit themselves to each other and they are truly faithful and that they're you know i'm choosing you every day kind of thing and then uh this couple uh ends up having kids whether that means they have their own kids they adopt a child whatever mm-hmm. and then a dynamic shifts in their marriage where their focus moves away from faithfulness to each other and into uh fully into raising the child right and being you know doing the doing the parents thing and then it gets to a point where you know this child grows up and now this child is you know 18 19 20 and they move out and they're on their own and now it's just the parents again but because of the parents like they lost their focus they became focused entirely on the child now the thing that they initially committed to the marriage is in shambles 
because they know they weren't focusing on that relationship. Uh, they were only focusing on um, that child. And so I, I think that kind of plays in because uh, if we're, if we're had this kind of success oriented kind of thing, and then, like you said, I become a CEO at 50, but then I end up calling you crying because it doesn't matter. And then I look around and my relationships are shattered. And now like you're screwed, right? Because uh, you like to talk about how like relationships constitute our own, like our being, <laughs> like we are who we are because of the relationships that we have. Um, and the success stuff is like hyper individualistic. Um, to me, that image of like the the parents like destroying a relationship because they went and focused not on their faithfulness to each other, but on the success of raising that, you know, making that kid, whatever. Um, it seemed to work for some reason. I don't know. Does that, what do you think? I, I think Does that's exactly right. And the, absolutely. And the, the thing that's right about it is well, there's a lot of that's right about it. But one thing I want to highlight is we tend to think that faithfulness to one thing means like abandoning faithfulness to other things. And this is because of our success oriented mindset where it's like, dude, I got to go make bank in my twenties. So if I can go bankrupt, I can recover from it by my 30. Like everything's that right. And you hear this from so many people saying stuff like, I don't got time for a relationship right now. Right. I got to focus my career. I'll do that later. And at one strategic level, that makes tons of sense. <laughs> there's there's all kinds of limits to our time. But it's interesting. Like my wife and I were married seven, eight years, I think, before we had our son. And I mean, I, I hope our marriage is not in shambles, but it certainly kind of followed that arc, right? Where, you know, we got married and for what it's worth, and I, I not feel like guilty and weighted down by this, but in retrospect, I wish I had spent more time focusing on my relationship with Vanessa in those first eight years problem was I was in grad school for a lot of it. <laughs> and so I was reading like 12 hours a day, right? And so the early part of our marriage was me being so focused on graduate school. And then I got out and it was me being so focused on getting a tenure track job. And then we had our son and then it was so focused on making sure that we raise our son, but oh shoot, I've also got to get tenure because now I've got a family to support. And then it was, right, but notice it's the, and then it, and then it, <laughs> and in the book, I call this a, if only, then I'll logic. If only I can get that job, then I'll have time for the family. If only I can get promoted, then I'll have time to take a vacation, right? And the problem is, if we have made, I mean, Aristotle says this, if we make habits, those habits determine our identity. So I've made a habit of being more focused on something else. Well, then it's nearly impossible for me to remain as committed to the thing that I am no longer focused on, right? And so kid shows up and this happens to my wife and I for sure. Like our whole world now becomes don't let this kid die. I mean, which is kind of all the first year is. And then it shifts to, you know, oh, well, now how can we raise him correctly? And how do we teach him right? And how do we get him to band practice and get him to youth group and get him like everything centered on him? And then you do have to realize like, oh, shoot, like we've not hung out in years, like in real ways. And the problem is because of a success logic, we think, well, there's only so much time. 
I've got to pick one or the other. What do you want me to do? Quit my job? What am I going to do? Let my son start? Like we end up justifying because it's so human and understandable. There's only so many hours. And if we don't sleep at least five or six of them, we start being bad at all of it, right? But what you start realizing, I think, if you start taking faithfulness seriously, is you say, huh, I talk about this in the book. It's not that I stop focusing on my students so I can focus on my wife. No, it's just I don't have to give my students all of me, right? That they get me when I am putting my professor hat on in the appropriate strategic way to make sure I am excellent in those relationships, given that part of how my life plays out as a professor. And then when I put my dad hat on, which again, never comes all the way off, because if the school calls, something's happened to Atticus, my students, like they're going to have to just leave because my son trumps them all day long. But usually I don't have to make that call, right? And because I usually don't have to make that call, I can be as much as I can be for them when I've got them as my focus. And then my son tonight came home. I was like, dude, let's go play football. So we were outside throwing the football for like half an hour. And then we did some homework. And then they went to church and I'm here chatting with you. In the midst of all this, I graded papers at every little swath of time that I had because I got 25 papers to have done by tomorrow. They're not done, by the way. I'll go back and do them later. But what am I not trying to do? Grade papers while talking to you. Because now like, I'm on here with you with all I got. And then when I get off with you, I'm going to be everything I can for my papers because I love my students. And then my family is going to get home and my papers are going to go away. I'm going to focus on my son, right? Being able to recognize that we can actually pivot in our lives relative to like absolute priorities remaining in place. But those absolute priorities don't mean that I'm always having to sacrifice the same way. Right. There are some days, Vanessa, I've got to get this book finished. And so she takes Vanessa and goes to Florida to see her parents for a week so I can get this done. There are other days where it's like, you know what? That deadline's just going to have to be pushed back because my son's got a math test tomorrow. Like it, it's okay to kind of recognize that some of that tension is just part of the struggle that is the life we live. Right. And so the way I put it in the book is if we start confusing, these different roles, and I start grading my wife and kissing my students, like all bad, man, (laughs) nothing good comes of that. But if I keep it straight, I can grade my students because I'm invested in my wife and our relationship is the priority. But it's also the case that during the day, like I don't have to go stalk her outside of her workplace to make sure she knows I love her. I'm loving her by being good at my job. And I'm loving my son by making sure that I'm opening a future that hopefully he has then the right kind of support to walk into, right? So finding ways to say our strategic and our our, um, logistical requirements, those conflict. And so we've got to make choices and it's hard sometimes. But rarely do we have to make absolute choices. And that's what faithfulness reminds us. As long as we're success-minded, there is only one outcome. More, better, more, better, bigger audience, more attraction, more applause. And so all the others get reprioritized relative to it. And as soon as that happens, 
the only way we can be somebody we want to be is to continue to be badly all the things that we actually should care about, right? It's almost necessary that we start making that sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. Um, I like that idea of being able to pivot between the different, you know, ultimates, um, you know, according to where your feet are, right? Um, be where your feet are. <laughs> so, so, so smart. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, so I want to share with you because at the beginning, I, I had mentioned that there was a chapter that um, was like deeply moving to me. And so I wanted to kind of share that experience and then just uh, get some of your, your thoughts on it. So the chapter specifically, um, if I remember correctly, was titled On Being Known. And so I read that chapter on vacation with my cup of coffee before all my friends got up because I'm the weirdo that gets up at 6 a.m. to read, you know, for an hour before he starts his day. Um, and and th this is important real quick <laughs> as a, a footnote. People who look at this book and say, I don't like camping. I don't like going mountain biking. Notice beach with coffee before the <laughs> sun's up. Right. This book is not about actually going camping. It's about taking these ideas and deploying them relative to what brings us joy. And so I just want to make clear that what you're doing in this story is exactly what this book is hoping for, for people. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, it's that uh, object lesson uh, <laughs> built in. But um, yeah, so anyway, the you kind of uh, frame it with, I forget what this show is, but so is it Cheers? Was Cheers. The, yeah, yeah, the show that you use, which so I I will admit I have not um I don't think I've ever watched Cheers, but you talk about kind of this like the whole barstool thing, and um talk about this character ultimately being known, and mm -hmm. part of why that uh, moved me so much was because in my very real experience, um Full Tilt, the place that um I used to work. Beca became this place that was so healing for me as I look back mm. um, after losing and walking away from a community of faith, I found this new place where I was known fully and even more deeply than I was, you know, in the church. Um, and that's, you know, not just a slight at them. That's also on me. Um, but because they're at full tilt, um, you know, I could be working in the back, you know, busting my ass and then come out to the bar, you know, and see uh, Mike and Reggie and, you know, the the other regulars there um, and like grab a beer and hang out with them and laugh. And, you know, they didn't you know, they don't care, um, you know, that like it wasn't about like, oh, what is Josh's job title or what is this or that or whatever? I was my goofy, weird self always because I wasn't afraid of having my uh, job taken away because I like said something incorrectly theologically or because I used more profanity than I should have or something like that. Right. <laughs> and so it, it became this place of a deep knowing where I felt like I could fully be myself. <laughs> and that brought so much deep healing to me in my life um, that losing that was a deeply painful experience. Um, not that I've lost those friends, but like the experience that was full tilt um, is no longer a place I can put my feet, uh, so to speak, to be there. Right. Um, so it was painful. And, and so it just kind of um, reminded me of the the joy 
that really does come from being known and uh, kind of the the healing that can be found there. And also um, with these kind of like big existential uh, questions and existential crises, there is some kind of a, at least for me, I have found a, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, like a safe haven or like something like that in being known, even amongst the kind of like big existential questions and crises, uh, if that makes sense. So that chapter is oh, moving. Dude, I, I can't tell you again how much I appreciate that. Um, hands down the most rewarding thing about writing this book again in a a way hopefully that um is never patronizing so i i am still trying to write it in a way that says hey um you know i am going not to name drop but i'm going to introduce you to my friends like plato and aristotle and simone de beauvoir right and so it's i hope not patronizing but i do hope that it is accessible not only verbally and terminologically so like it's readable i hope it's accessible in the sense that it does exactly what you just described that it, it resonates in a way that is deeper than just a head knowledge it's like yeah i feel that right like that that gets it right um and so it means more to me than i can explain that 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 chapter jumped out to you in that way and it's funny so a um a, a thing I, I actually forget. Uh, did I tell? Did I tell in the book about um, the class I taught? Like wh where that story comes from? I don't think I did. As far as like, I, I was teaching in in school, like the first time I ever used that um, Cheers theme song. Don't you want to go where everybody knows your name? I don't think I talk about where that came from, do I? Yeah, I don't think you told the story of the class. No. Yeah. So let me let me tell this because I don't, I, I won't breach any confidence, um, but it it matters because. Sometimes when we think about things matter to us that we have no idea that they will ever matter to anybody else. And this chapter, for what it's worth, is like the chapter where I thought, man, nobody's going to vibe with this one. <laughs> and the reason is it's almost so personal. Um, so I had a student years ago who right before class uh, came up to me and said, Dr. Smith, can I talk to you? So we went out in the hall and um, they they said to me, um, basically, um, that one of their good friends turns out had been like an ex-partner and stuff had just committed suicide the night before. And, you know, they, they're breaking down, like in the hallway telling me this. And I, I told the student, I was like, look, um, why don't you not come to class today? Right. Like, of all, like this is, this is perfectly good. Like, don't be here go take care of yourself. Do you, you know, I'll walk you over to the counseling center, to the chaplain's office, like anything I can do to make sure you get the resources you need. Cause I'm not that resource, right? Like I, I'm not a therapist. This book tries to make that clear. I am not the, the wisdom from on top of the mountain, like offering it to the young folk in the valleys. That's just not the way I approach what I do. And so the student said, no, to be honest, I think the best thing I can do right now is, is just act like things are normal. Can I come to class? Do you care? It may be hard for me if I end up having to leave. I just want to let you know. And it's like, oh my goodness, absolutely, please. You know, so he went inside. I to this day have no idea what I was supposed to be teaching that day. Have no clue what was on the lesson plan, what I was going to be covering had this not happened. But sometimes in life, um, you know, funny things happen on the way uh, to the forum or whatever, as Mel Brooks says. And it's also the case that tragic things happen on the way to give lectures, right? And I went into class and I forget, again, what I 
probably had a few sentences in trying to start the class. And I stopped. And I said, you know what? I said, um, and I didn't mention a thing about the student. No one knew any of that was going on. It wasn't my place to, to say at that time. <clears throat> and so what I did was pulled up the theme song to Cheers, right? And it starts off making your way in the world today takes everything you've got, <laughs> right? Making your way through all the troubles sure would help a lot. Don't you want to get away? Sometimes you need to go to a place where everybody knows your name. And I played that theme song done by, and my goodness, I recommend this. If you can stick it in the podcast notes, I don't know how you do that stuff. Hopefully there's a link to Camping with Kierkegaard and a link to my website and all that. Put a link, I'll send it to you as soon as this is over, to the Foy Vance cover, F-O-Y-V-A-N-C-E, the Foy Vance cover of the Cheers theme song. It is devastatingly beautiful. And so I put it on the screen and I played the song and I said, you know, guys, I said, today what I want to do is simply talk about the solidarity that occurs in the human condition when we are able not to take the pain away from someone, not to take loss away from someone, but to walk with them in the midst. And so I don't remember what the class was, but I remember, and I remember what I said, but I remember we played that song and then we just had this conversation in the class about where are you known? <laughs> what, what does that look like? What, where do you feel like no matter how stupid you are or how big the zit is on the side of your face or how, you know, whatever you feel like, you know, you're good because they've got you. Like, what would that be? Where is that place? <clears throat> and um, after we got done with the class, the the student just left, you know, it wasn't a word. And then months later, I, I got an email and it basically just said like, you know, that that's the best thing I could have possibly had that day was just a reminder that I'm not alone, like in that moment. And again, I wasn't talking to that student. I wasn't saying that student's situation, but it was just creating this space where we could talk about what it looks like to share with each other this this felt depth of, of vulnerability that only plays out when you realize everybody knows you. And so that experience, when I was sitting on top of a mountain, literally where I wrote this book was on top of the mountains in North Carolina. I was sitting on top of the mountain and I started writing and that experience came to mind and that chapter flowed out of it. And I, I tell that story because it's important to understand that being known is not only something that um, it's not only something that happens in pain and suffering and vulnerability. Like notice, probably the experiences you had there at Full Tilt were y'all laughing and tasting stuff and making jokes, right? And and you know, it, it's it's the lived experience of the full range of the human condition that makes it possible then when we are our worst versions of ourselves they aren't leaving right they're not going they're not turning away from us and when we are at our lowest and our most broken they aren't trying to put us back together they're just there letting us know hey you're still good <laughs> right like I, I can't walk this for you, 
but I sure as hell am going to be standing right here while you walk it. Right. That, that fact is something that, um, for me was so personal because I, it was this person's story that created this sort of experience. And it was spontaneous. It was not planned. There was no thinking this through. There was not, Oh, I know what I'll do today. It was entirely what happened in that minute. Um, and the fact that then for someone else to say, thinking about being known helps me make sense of one of the great joys in life, which is being known. Think about that. Think about how cool that is. Compare that to one of the great joys in life is making your first million. One of the great joys in life is retiring at 36. One of the great joys in life is being able, um, you know, to afford a destination wedding. Like those are all cool things, right? Like I'm good with all of them. There's no hate for that. But there is a critique of that being the great joys. They just aren't. The great joys are when you tell a joke that bombs, but you know they're not laughing at you, <laughs> right? It's it's when you show up and you're not actually okay. And when they say, you good? And you're like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And they know you're not, but they don't then press you what they do is just make sure that then, hey, dude, I'm going to go grab lunch. Why don't you come with me? And and suddenly, like, they're, they're able to move in ways that the dance of the human condition is one that's never just a solo, right? You know, it's uh, a buddy of mine, Nick Riggle, has a great book called On Being Awesome. And he tells this story, um, another thing you might want to link to because it's just it's just awesome, is there's this guy, I'm blanking on his name. Um, but he's famous, internet famous, for losing his ever-loving mind at a basketball game when Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer comes on. And it comes on, and the, the camera's doing this kind of sweeping through the crowd, and it just happens on him. And he looks up, gets up, starts lip-syncing this song. I mean, goes bananas, up and down the aisle, everybody around him starts vibing with it. They're giving him high fives. They're giving each other hugs. They're all now screaming, living on a prayer. Like, it's amazing. And you think, man, that's awesome. Not just because that dude did what he did. That would have been maybe hilarious, but it's awesome because his choice to live into a possible world where everybody didn't just laugh at him, but they got up and hugged him and sang with him. It's, it's like in this weird, bizarre, kitschy sort of way, the most beautiful thing. <laughs> because immediately strangers become humans together. And it's stunning. And so for me, being known doesn't have to be this deep, agonizing kind of, uh, you know, I don't know. This, this, when you listen to Foy Vance song, like it, it's, it's depressively beautiful. It doesn't have to be that. It, it can be living on a prayer to the top of your lungs. Or the other day, dude, I was, well, I was driving out of a parking lot. And this, like, I mean awesome like out of a snoop dog kind of 
video caddy comes rolling in the parking lot as I'm driving out, right? And I'm talking like Snoop Dogg 94, not not today. <laughs> now he'd be like riding in in a Rastafari like lion uh, parade or something, right? But this caddy comes in and it, you know, I'm not even paying attention, right? You know, I'm just, I, I noticed that it was kind of a cool Cadillac. That was like it. And I'm getting ready to turn left. He's coming in and he stops right next to me. <laughs> rolls down his window and again like i don't you don't know how to act like what, what's going on is there, is he trying to talk to me is he just pausing what and i start hearing hey yo hey hey and I, my wife's like aaron aaron because we don't know what's going on right our son's in the back i have no idea and i look over and i was like hey man can i help you and he looks up at me and i kid you not he says dude how about the seminoles because i had this florida state sticker on the front of my car i was like bro they're crushing it, right? He's like, man. And we had like a 15 minute conversation about the 90s and Warwick Dunn and Charlie Ward and back in the day. I don't know who that guy is. We never told each other our names, but we sure as heck like reached out and fist bumped each other before we drove off. It was like, man, the world's freaking awesome. I don't know what that dude does. I have no idea about anything in his life. And for that instant, our love of the Florida State Seminoles was sufficient to make everything else secondary, right? And I know that's trivial and silly in light of the weightiness that is trauma. And yet at the same time, it's like, oh my gosh, like the knownness of human existence is so, so palpably there. And yet it, it's like, you know, one of those films where like, you know, you're out of phase and you, you're screaming at someone and they're like right there, but they can't touch you. They can't hear you. And you'll have like that weird cut screen where like their faces are two inches away and they can't see each other. It's that kind of thing. It's like if only would ever let that veil drop and say, man, I don't need to know anything else about you. The fact that we are Seminoles fans is sufficient for me to care that you are on the planet. Right. And the fact that we all know sweet Caroline and living on a prayer and like, you know, jump around, like the fact that we are solid in our togetherness is just, it's beautiful, man. And so the idea that you're at that bar and those dudes know you, and then you're not at that bar and you feel like you've lost that space. What I would say back to you is, but isn't it amazing <laughs> that that space actually is everywhere it's just that we really because of the success logic man we do everything we can just like i did keep my head down don't look at him i don't know what he's up to because i see him as competition threat obstacle problem it didn't even occur to me it's like as some dude drove in be like you know throwing him the seminal chop like it didn't because i'm not i'm like in my own world and then when he ruptured my egoism hey <laughs> was like ah togetherness yes i want to go where everyone knows my name and where is that at any seminoles watch party man and i will hug every one of those people and that's something special right and when we lose every one of us are going to say the same cuss words and we're going to have the same sort of reaction and does that spill over into our political alliances maybe not but I'm convinced the only hope we have for even our democracy that's like in tatters right now is if we start like bowling together more and watching football more and listening to music more and singing Sweet Caroline and living on a prayer, which I know sounds offensively naive.
And yet, I, man, watch that Foy Vance song and tell me that like, like it, it just gets it right. It's felt. And so to that former student, we stay in touch and they're doing great now. And the idea that in that instant, I didn't have to know anything else about them to know exactly what being known looks like and why that was needed, right? And it's not because I'm brilliant, it's because I'm human. So yeah, man, thank you so much for what you said about that chapter, because it's, it's for what it's worth, it's one of my favorite chapters. Um, and it's also, I think, the shortest chapter by a lot. And yet I love it because it's not only about the Cheers theme song for anybody who's a big fan of Tombstone, the movie. It's also about the Tombstone movie <laughs> with Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp and their relationship, their friendship being deeper than, you know, just this kind of success strategic way of navigating the world. I am not known just because I work with people. I am known because the people I work with are people I want to live alongside. And that investment is something that is an extra step. And it's something that's also for what it's worth. Sometimes people that we work with just, you know what? They're not going to sing with me. They are not going to dance with me. And that's also fine. And I don't have to then like insert myself into their space. They don't want me to know them. Also fine. And so being able to kind of recognize you ain't got to be all things to all people. But if you want, like, man, the song is is going. Like, let's, let's make this happen. You know, no, I I love that because there's there's also this kind of invitation there into like being the kind of person that would sing and dance and yeah. be silly at a you know Seminoles game or something like that. Um, yeah, I do pep to... rallies before all of my exams. I do yeah. pep rallies, and the reason is because everybody's stressed about exams. We know each other, right? Like this is human, but. Everybody feels better when they sing, you know, DJ Khaled, all I do is win, 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 never gonna stop. Like, if we're bouncing to that, you're less stressed about the philosophy test. Like, it's just true. And so creating that embodied space to be human with each other. And then me say, hey, you know what? And me staying in this room stresses y'all out. I'm gonna trust you. Don't cheat. Bring it to me when you're done. Stick on headphones, like like create spaces for each other that allow them to live into the kind of spaces where they can thrive. And again, it's mundane and silly. It's not solving racism, but maybe it is for those 20 students in that room, helping their stress level be just enough lower that they're able to navigate today a little bit less sucky. Right. And, and that seems like something we can all do for each other a little bit, you know? Yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. And there's like a, a vulnerability about that, yeah. um, which yeah. involves risk. Right. But like you said earlier, like there's risk in all things. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's, right. I don't know the, the singing and dancing too, man. I know like not to keep, you know, going on about this full tilt thing, but that like, we literally physically like sung and danced at full tilt, like in ridiculous ways, like during canning, right? Canning at full tilt was probably the most frustrating thing in the entire freaking world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, for not just you know Bryce the other brewer and myself, but also for the volunteers that were there helping us. And so, what did we do? We would put on the loudest, most obnoxious, like ridiculously inappropriate music and just act 
ridiculous and have fun and laugh at the, you know, laugh at the fact that the canning machine is a piece of shit and, yep. you know, but share that with each other. And, um, yep. you know, you like all the these movie, kind of things. So have you ever seen the movie Money Pit? It's an old movie with Tom Hanks and, uh, oh, well, my goodness, there, there is a scene in there. It's, it's this, this film where, where they buy this old house, um, and everything goes to crap. Like, I mean, the floor falls apart. The staircase falls apart. I mean, it's just hilariously bad, like almost slapstick bad that this house just falls apart. But there's this one scene where <laughs> Tom Hanks is filling up this bathtub and he has this water jug that he's had to go outside to the fountain to get because their water doesn't work in the house. And it brings up and he throws the water into this bathtub. And it's one of those moments where like they have nothing left, but my goodness, we can just get in this bath and just try to let some of the stress fall off, right? And he throws the bucket of water in the bathtub. The bathtub falls through the floor, shatters on the lower story, goes everywhere. And the camera is looking up through this now gaping hole in the floor at Tom, Tom Hanks uh, up there with, with the, the woman who I'm blanking on her name. My goodness, why am I? Uh, she's the woman who played actually in Cheers and I'm her name is just slipping my mind right this second. Um, but they're looking down and she's got this look of just like panic and you know, tears coming out of her eyes. And Tom Hanks starts cracking up. I mean, laughing like to the point where he's heaving laughing. And he's like bent over double laughing. And it reminds me of Slavoj Žižek, who has this book where he says, first is tragedy, then is farce. <laughs> right? And it's only people who know you, man, who can go to farce with you. Right? And, and you're right. Canning machines failing. But somehow, by playing Lamb of God's walk in hell with me, like, we're okay. We're still good. But oh, dang it, like this stupid machine. And there's something so human about letting the range of our emotions be available such that we then, I think at one point in the, I think it's the preface or something, I say, um, you know, come walk with me. And I say, and maybe even dance with me on the trails. Like, that's not metaphor for me. I don't know how to dance, but I sure as hell know how to mosh. Like, let's freaking jump into each other. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm down. And even if we don't dance, you know what's awesome and it's almost impossible to like stay stressed, skip through anything. Like go, just go to work and skip through the halls in your coat and tie or fancy pantsuit or whatever one wears. Go to the mall and just skip around. Let everybody look at you like you're a freaking fool. I guarantee you it is impossible to let the egoism of a success culture continue to stay in place if you are skipping through the world. And yet, man, like, that's just better. You get places faster. You don't actually raise your heart rate. You bound like a gazelle. Like, it's a better way to get from place to place. And yet we don't do it because it interrupts all the people who are just kind of walking around. It's like Phoebe when she runs like super nuts and friends and Rachel's embarrassed to run with her. And then Rachel realizes that's awesome. And starts running like Phoebe. It's like, man, why don't we all find a way to say, hey, I've got your back to the point where if you run like a fool or you skip down the hallway, I'm going to skip in behind you. Right. And, and man, camping with Kierkegaard is not 
about going camping, though I love camping. It is not even about Kierkegaard, though he's in it a bunch. It is about inviting ourselves and then inviting others to dance. And, and if we don't know how to dance, to cry. And if we are cried out to, you know, get up and have a beer or coffee or sit at the beach or sit by ourselves, like whatever that looks like. This is a book that just says, hey, it matters wherever you are that you be there on purpose. And for me, like, I don't know. I don't want to go camping with Kierkegaard personally. Like dude was melancholic and probably a pain. Uh, but I want to make sure that my dad who has cancer currently and is 80 years old, I, I don't want to let it be possible that when he, whenever he passes away, and I hope it's years from now, that I don't look back and say, dang it, why didn't I take go fishing with him? Why did, why, why did I think that that committee meeting was more important? Right? And I don't know. I, th I think all of us can do a little bit better in that, right? Whatever our circumstance, whatever our situation, I think we can do a little bit better. And as, again, Anne Lamott says somewhere, if we can do a little bit better, it turns out we might change the world. I mean, think about how different the world would be if we were a little bit better at not hating people with whom we disagree, right? And again, I'm a progressive man. Like I disagree with lots of political views, but can I do a little bit better and still say, but I'm going to give them a fist bump when we are talking about Seminoles and realize, but they're not evil. Their views suck and the views hurt people. And how can I stand against those views? How can I invite them not to hold those views? How can I fight against those views going into practice? Like, yes, but you know what, man, like, Dude said, they remind me of the 90s. And I was like, man, I was there in the 90s. He's like, what? I mean, for, for an instant, none of the other stuff mattered, right? And I think that that is maybe what faithfulness as a way of life makes possible. And so I hope you find in your new position what Full Tilt offered. But it turns out if it doesn't offer that to you, Full Tilt, those people still exist. And it turns out that y'all can Zoom with each other and play Walk With Me in Hell. And you can rage together. Over, like I have had dance parties, dude, with my Zoom classes because students were just depressed and like didn't have it that night. And I was like, all right, forget it. We're not going to do philosophy now. Everybody turn off your cameras. I'm going to play music so that it comes through all of our speakers. And I would go up to like my son's room and turn on his black light because he's 14 and thinks that's cool. <clears throat> and he and I, with our cameras on, would just lose our minds and dance to whatever it was. And then 10 minutes later, I turned the camera like, all right, now guys, turn your cameras back on. Let's do some philosophy. And it turns out all of them were ready to go, right? Sometimes you've got to free each other up enough to realize we don't always have to take ourselves seriously. And when we don't, maybe Kierkegaard's standing there saying, hey, you know what's real fun? S'mores around a campfire. Like, it's just, it's just better. Being at the beach, having a glass of wine getting up before the kids do, having 20 minutes by yourself. Wendy Farley, this theologian, has an amazing book where she says, maybe just spending an extra minute in the bath <laughs> is life-giving, <laughs> right? Maybe letting the song in before you get out of the car at work is changing the day for you. Like, we can do a little better. And I think that little better might actually change the world. Well, I'm here for that. I'm here for that. Yeah, man.
And I'll uh, always dance with you, brother. I, I think yes. our musical tastes overlap just enough that uh, <laughs> just we, enough, we can yes. we can jump into each other with force uh, without one of us starting that bizarre like windmill kick stuff that I think is just douchey. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll take it. Well, I look forward to dancing <laughs> at uh, at theology beer camp. All Can't right. wait, man. It's going to be super fun. Dude, thank you so much for having me. I hope people will check out Camping with Kierkegaard. It's the only book I've ever written that I hope my son reads and that I can recommend both to my students and also to my friends who are in their 80s. And so I hope people will check it out. I, I hope it's worthy of their finitude, the couple days it takes to read it. Please reach out to me, anybody who's interested, simmonsphilosopher at gmail.com. I love interacting with people. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you enjoy the book, let me know. If you took issue with things in the book, let me know. Um, go to my website, jrnsimmons.com. Get signed up. I do a monthly newsletter that has lots of music and culture and long-form philosophy videos. I would love to connect with people there. And then also check out my YouTube channel, Philosophy for Where We Find Ourselves, where I do weekly videos trying to put in practice what Camping with Kierkegaard invites us to do. So, man, I'm a fan of yours. And and for what it's worth, I will always hold the uh, bar stool open for you, man. Yes, respect. Thank you so much, Aaron. It uh, really was a blast. I I really genuinely enjoyed uh, camping with Kierkegaard. I already asked a few friends if they would uh, read it with me. So, you know, awesome. You know, re well, I guess in my case, reread it. But um, yeah. So thank you for that, and um, I'll be sure to link all of the wonderful linkables and such <laughs> in, so the, much, in, I appreciate in the show notes. And uh, yeah, That's thank right. you. Thank you for that, that ever haunting, but uh, also beautiful question. What is worthy of your finitude? I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. We'll see you next time.